Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard, and today we'll be talking to Professor Dario Floriano, who is the head of the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Switzerland. From his PhD on, he has been a pioneer in taking inspiration from biology to design new approaches in robotics. From evolutionary algorithms to artificial neural networks, and from single robots to swarm systems, Professor Floriano has shown that robotics can help understand biology and vice versa. Dario Floriano has chaired several international conferences, is co-founder of the Artificial Life Society, member of the Board of Governors of the International Society for Neural Networks, and is on the editorial board of eight international journals. He is also the founder of the Talking Robots podcast and has co-authored a book on evolutionary robotics together with Stefano Nolfi. Today on Talking Robots, we will be looking at one of his favorite fields, evolutionary robotics. Hi Dario, welcome to Talking Robots. Hi Sabine, and uh, let me first welcome you to this podcast. You will be the new host for this series. And uh, I also take the opportunity to thank Marcus. Marcus, who is sitting just here in this room, he has been the host of the show for the last uh, seven months. We started in 15th of September in 2006. And, uh, and Marcus has been uh, carrying out all the interviews, preparing them with a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of professionalism. And... Um, so Marcus now will be focusing on his uh, PhD because he has uh, a few months left to go and he has uh, some experiments to carry out and then write up the thesis. I also would like to take the opportunity to thank Peter. Peter, you don't, the, our uh, listeners don't uh, listen to him very often, but he's always sitting in the studio here preparing all the setup, recording the uh, podcast and doing the editing. So he's a very important person. He has been here with us for seven months and will be continuing doing this. So thanks a lot, Peter. I also wanted to thank Marcus for his coaching these last couple of weeks. Okay, so let's get back to evolutionary robotics. Yes. Since 1991, you've been investigating an approach in robotics known as evolutionary robotics. Can you give us some insight as to what this field is all about? Okay, evolutionary robotics, very simply put, is, the, is an imitation of natural evolution applied to robots. We can think of a robot just like an organism, and, um, and the organisms are the result of an evolutionary process. They have not been designed by anybody, at least that's what I think. <laughs> and um, so a few persons uh, at the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, started to think, well, designing a robot by hand programming it by hand is a very complex affair. It's very difficult. And especially if you want to have an autonomous robot that displays the same type of abilities and capacities of a, of a living system, then why not using something that is similar to uh, natural evolution? So in evolutionary robotics, what we do is that um, we um, sort of endow these robots with a genome an artificial genotype, an artificial DNA, and this DNA is just uh, like a, uh, a string of zeros and ones, typically, that encodes the properties or the features of the robot. So a robot, just like an organism, has at least two types of features. It has a body and it has a behavior, and the behavior is generated by the brain that interacts with the 
body and with the environment. So the, these artificial genomes, they encode the properties of the brains, so to speak, of these robots, and sometimes also of the, of the body. And then what we do is that we, we create, a, just like in nature, a population of many different uh, genomes, each corresponding to different robots. Each of these robots and their genomes are evaluated in the real environment. Uh, we look at the performance of the different robots and then we make this robot reproduce and by reproducing what we mean is that we make a number of copies of the genes of the best robots in the population proportional to the performance of those robots. And uh, what happens is that you, you, you basically have a new population, it's called the next generation so to speak, of, of genomes each corresponding to different robots. Some of them will be uh, better than the parents, some of them will be worse because the genomes during reproduction have been mutated and crossed over, and some of them will have the same performance but will have a different style. So why would one want to evolve a robot? Well, there are really, I would say, two reasons. The first reason is, uh, is related to the complexity of building, designing and programming a robot for being autonomous in the real world. If you just look at an insect, even if an insect has a relatively simple brain compared to the brain of a mammalian system, there are a lot of subtleties in the connections of the sensors to the, to the muscles that control the legs or the wings that are still far too, from being understood. And um, even therefore, even designing such a simple system is quite complicated. Therefore, I think evolution, being a, an automated process that discovers the best way of wiring up sensors to the motors of the robot, is a very well-suited um, strategy and very well, very promising, so to speak. The second reason for for doing evolution in robotics is to address biological questions with robots that biologists cannot address, either because, for example, the there is no more fossil record available so that we do not understand how a certain feature or property of the animals emerged in the first place, or because there are some type of experiments that biologists cannot carry out with, with animals. Instead, with our robots, we can do all we want. They are basically boxes that we can open and we, we can stop evolution at any point in time. So using this evolutionary approach, in 1994, you demonstrated that real robots could be evolved without using simulation. Can you explain this experiment to us? Yes. Uh, I would like to take also the opportunity on this question to say that um, the idea of evolving robots have been around before 1994. And uh, as you correctly pointed out, most of those um, experiments or research was done in simulations. For example, the um, a research group at the University of Sussex in Brighton, uh, namely Phil Husband, uh, Iman Harvey, David Cliff, and many other people, they have been thinking of uh, evolving robots for a long time, before 1993-1994. Same thing, for example, at the National Research Council in Rome with Stefano Nolfi, Domenico Parisi, and, and, and other people. Now, the question was that at that time, in 19, up to, I would say, the beginning of the 90s, robots were really big machines that... Uh, uh, were not easily automated and were not easily operated. And I think I had the, the luck, the chance to, to meet some people here at the PFL who were developing the Kepler robot, which is a, a tiny robot the size of a, 
of, uh, well, six centimeters in diameter, as like a, a cup of uh, coffee. That could be operated very easily on a table, very easy to use software, and a very sturdy robot. It was small, so it could run for day and night, several days without breaking. And uh, really, the, the, what, the innovation, I would say, of that experiment was very simple. It was just applying the ideas of evolving uh, the control system of a robot to a physical robot that was connected to a computer through a cable. The cable had specially designed rotating contacts so that the cable would never be entangled. And the computer was also providing through those cable power to the robot. So at that time, we had the opportunity to eventually start running evolution on a physical robot and monitor what, what was happening for a long period of time. Now, in, uh, in that experiment, in, we carried it out in 1993 and then published in 94. what happened was that we, we started with a very simple experiment. We wanted to see whether artificial evolution was capable of developing a, a brain, so to speak, for a robot that is capable of navigating, moving around in, in an environment with some obstacles. And uh, as a brain for that robot, we chose a neural network, a very simple neural network, and uh, the genome of our, our robot was basically a series of zeros and ones that uh, uh, was encoding the connectivity of the input neurons of the neural network to the output neurons of the neural network. So the input units of this neural network was, were connected to the sensors of the robot and the output units were connected to the motors of the robot. And what we did, we put this small Kepra robot in, a, in an environment on our desk near the computer and we connected the computer and we started the evolutionary process. That was basically the first experiment. At the same time, our colleagues in Brighton were doing similar experiments with a slightly different robot that didn't have wheel, it was a suspended robot, but basically the idea was very similar. So it is very important in robotics to be able to adapt your robot to different environments. So how can you achieve adaptation using evolution if we are, for example, to move this Kepra robot in a, another maze? Um, yes, that's a, a crucial question, and the problem is that uh, today when we run evolution, we always run it, or we, we test, uh, we evaluate the performance of our robots in a single environment. And evolution is, a, just like natural evolution, is a very opportunistic uh, process that will exploit all the possible ways to let the genes of the robot survive and reproduce over and over generations. And what happens is that if you use a single environment, sometimes the solution that your robot finds is tuned to that specific environment. You move the robot to a different environment and the solution doesn't work anymore. There are two ways, at least, uh, at least two ways in which people, uh, that people use to solve this problem. One is to evolve the robot in multiple environments. So you take the genome of a particular individual and you test that genome in within that robot in several different environments that have some small uh, change one with respect to the other. But that, I would say, it's not a real solution because, you know, you, the environment could change in unpredictable ways that were not taken into account uh, during the experiments. The other strategy that people use is a so-called incremental evolution and uh, consists in uh, setting up a genetic description, a genome, and, and, uh, and a way of evaluating the robot so that evolution will never stop. So you make sure that you have a sufficiently diverse population of genomes and that these genomes can evolve for long periods of time. You start evolving your robots in a 
particular environment, when they reach a sufficiently good performance, you move them to a different environment and they will continue to adapt. So you continue evolution online. Um, I would like to mention a third strategy that is really relatively new, I would say, and uh, was described by in a podcast by uh, Bongard and Lipson. And the idea is to evolve the control system of the robot and at the same time evolve, co-evolve an internal model of the environment that the robot is using for assessing its own performance. And by doing that, if the environment changes, the robot will change the internal model, will realize there is a difference, will change the internal model, and will adapt also its control system. So evolution is not the only way to allow for adaptation in a robot. What other mechanisms can we use? So there are a variety of uh, adaptation uh, strategies that one can put in a robot to let it adapt. Especially if you use a neural network, there are many off-the-shelf algorithms that you can uh, use for having this robot to learn. But the problem is that those uh, learning algorithms, they must... Most of the time they require a teacher that shows the robot how to solve the problem. The robot learns and then can solve the problem alone. Now, the big uh, uh, dream would be to have a robot that learns on its own uh, without uh, being shown how to, to, to solve the problem. And I think that a very promising uh, strategy here is to combine evolution with learning. And uh, one of the things that for example, one could do, and that I suggested a long time ago, but now many people are working in this area, of course, is that uh, you can actually evolve the learning rules that are used by the robot to learn during life. So we, all the living organisms, or most of the living organisms, can learn during life, and this learning is just the, 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 the rules or the, the characteristic of this learning is just the property of the system of the organisms that is encoded in the genes. Therefore, if we can find a way of encoding how a system can learn, then we can evolve, we can let evolution discover the best way of combining different learning rules and let the robot uh, learn on its own. And we've got quite uh, interesting results like that. We can show that we can evolve robots that, when they are put in new environments, for example, they can adapt autonomously without being shown how to solve the problem. So in a sense, the evolution of learning is, I would say, the fourth way of uh, coping with changing environments, added to the third, three previous ways that I mentioned before. And how do you achieve learning in robotic systems? Now, there are, uh, as I say, depends on the type of control system that you are using. If you use a neural network, which is uh, was what I use most of the time and also what we all use in the lab most of the time, then again, it's, it's easy because learning consists in a modification of the strength of the connections between the neurons in this neural network. And uh, as the robot experiences the environment through the sensors and moves around, modifies this environment, then the pattern of activity within the neural network change, changes and consequently the learning rules modify the synaptic strength which modify the behavior. Now, there is a quite interesting approach, I think, that we are developing now within the lab. And actually, Peter, our sound uh, uh, technician here, is that's at the topic of his PhD. Um, one of the things we are doing is we are evolving architectures that can modulate when learning is enabled and disabled during the life of the robot. And that's very powerful because, in principle, just like we start to know from neurophysiology these days, uh, in principle, the robot could decide when to learn, what to learn, and uh, what should be discarded from the environment. 
Up till now, we've been concentrating on evolution of single robots, but you also looked at coevolution. And in coevolution, you have two types of robots you have predators and you have preys. So, what is coevolution? Yes, uh, coevolution is the sit uh, situation where you have two opponent uh, species, uh, where the survival of one species or the reproduction of one species depends on the performance of the opponent species. So, like in the case of the predators and prey scenario that you mentioned, if the predators develop better abilities in catching prey, then the prey have less probability of reproducing their own genes. If the prey develop better, better strategies to avoid the predators, then the predators have less chance to reproduce their genes. And uh, from an engineering point of view, Coevolution, competitive coevolution is interesting because, in principle, um, one could have a sort of arms race where one species of robots become increasingly better and forces the other species of robot to develop increasingly better solutions. And this develops into what uh, even some biologists mentioned, like an arms race where you have incremental progress that is intrinsic to the system. So that's, uh, that's the reason why uh, it's quite interesting. And we tested whether this is actually the case with uh, two robots. One was a predator robot and the other was a prey robot. So these two robots were Kepra robots. And we, to the predator, what we did, we added a vision system that was capable of uh, detecting the prey at distance. And uh, the prey instead didn't have that vision system, but was capable of moving twice as fast as the predator. So we had a very fast prey, but almost blind. It could only detect the predator when it was very close. And we had a predator that was slow, but could accurately see where the prey was. We co-evolved the two species of robots, and uh, we checked whether we had the continuous incremental progress. And the criterion for producing the genes of the prey was simply the amount of time the prey was capable of avoiding the predator, and the, the criterion for reproducing the genes of the predator was how short how quickly the predator would hit the prey and catch it and the, the interesting results that came out from these experiments was there were actually two the first thing is that with that very simple evaluation criteria very quickly uh, relatively quickly i mean in very few generations we observed a variety of very complex behaviors like the both robots were quickly learning how to navigate in the arena where they were competing, avoiding the walls. The predator very quickly developed strategies to predict, to track the position of the prey, predict the movement and practically intercept the prey on its tra trajectory. And the prey also developed a number of very smart strategies for avoiding the predator. The downside of, that, uh, of those results was that the two systems after some time didn't develop increasingly better strategies, but were recycling the strategies that were already discovered in previous generations. So as soon as they reach a certain level of proficiency in catching the prey or avoiding the predator, they started recycling old strategies that would be very efficient for the current strategy displayed by the opponent species. And instead of progressing, therefore, they were just going through this recycling. This is something that we know also happens in biology and uh, somehow was a limitation of, of, of competitive coevolution. Speaking of biology, you're currently working on several projects with multiple robots which are expected to cooperate with each other. Why is evolution of multi-robot systems interesting? Sooner or later, we will have situations where we will have multiple small or big robots that have to work together. 
And as soon as they have to work together, there are a number of problems that we have to learn how to solve. One is how not to interfere with each other, the first. And possibly second is to solve problems that are difficult for a single robot to solve, solve those problems together by cooperation, through cooperation. And the third thing, hopefully, they will have to learn how to divide the labor, the task, into subtasks that each robot can uh, optimally perform. Now, those abilities to cooperate and uh, divide labor optimally are solved by a lot of living societies. We find that in uh, living animals. And uh, it is very difficult to design systems that robots that cooperate and divide labor optimally by hand because as soon as you program the behavior of one robot, that behavior will affect the behavior of the other robots. And uh, consequently, it will have perhaps an avalanche effect whereby the entire colony of robots will not work anymore. Or you might just have the opposite. You try to affect the behavior of one robot and that doesn't have any effect on the entire colony, so nothing happens really. And we know that in, for example, insect societies, there are very simple rules of communication that these insects use to efficiently cooperate and divide labor. Now, one way of copying or reproducing those rules in uh, robots would be to understand how the biological system works and then to transfer those rules into the robotic societies. Another way is to use artificial evolution to evolve the control system of robots that must work together. So they are evaluated for reproduction by working together. You recently published an article in Current Biology on the evolution of communication. What are the main results of this research? Yes, this is um, a work that uh, we did in collaboration with uh, Laurent Keller from the University of Lausanne, who was the um, um, one of the persons interviewed in the previous podcast. So he's a biologist. and. Uh, the question that we were asking was uh, under what conditions communication may have emerged in, in living societies. And uh, that's a, 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 an intriguing question for biologists because communication does not leave any fossil record. So we cannot possibly know what happened uh, a few million years ago. And here we have the opportunity to use artificial evolution to understand under what possible conditions evolution may or may have not emerged. So that was the motivation, the biological motivation, if you like, for those experiments. At the same time, we wanted to understand what should we put in our evolutionary algorithm to make sure that our robots cooperate and they decide to communicate to solve the problem together. So the results of those experiments uh, was, um, if you like, a couple of rules, very simple design rules that we have to put in our algorithm to make sure that those robots will decide to cooperate, will share information about the environment and will therefore will improve the performance of the entire colony. So here you talk about using robots to try to understand something about biology, but how do you overcome this reality gap that there is between complex biological systems and maybe more simplified robots? I think that it is not necessary to copy the entire biological system in order to address a specific question. Even in uh, biological science, uh, when you carry out an experiment, you make a simplification and an abstraction and you try to isolate only the one or two maximum possible variables that you want to study. So in robotics, the same thing. 
we want to make sure that we manipulate only one or two variables, for example, how we select robots in a colony or how similar the genomes of the different robots are. And we manipulate only those two variables. So to answer your question again, I would say that the main problem is how do we make sure that our robots do not introduce some artifact because they have some particular feature of their body, of their sensing, that will uh, affect the result of our experiment. We want to forget those are robots, we want just to focus on a couple of variables maximum. In your experiments, only the robot brains evolve, but would it be possible to have also the bodies that evolve like we find in nature? Indeed, that's uh, one of the, uh, I would say, hot questions these days. The evolution of the, actually the genetic description and the evolution of the robot morphology was already proposed back in uh, 94 by Carl Sims. He did a number of experiments using a very powerful computer where he was, where the genes of his creatures were modifying also the growth of the body and, uh, and at the same time the brain, so the neural networks of those, of those robots. At that time he was carrying out those experiments in simulation and he showed that evolution can come up with nicely coupled bodies and control systems. And um, what happened is that in, uh, in the year 2000 or 2001, uh, again Lipson, Hot Lipson and uh, Jordan Pollack in uh, the University of Brandeis in the US, they started to use a new type of um, technology called uh, 3D printing where they were basically encoding the properties of the bodies of these robots that could be read by a machine that would then print out in 3D the actual body. And it would just connect the motors to these bodies and let these robots move in the environment, evaluate their performance, put the performance of those robots back into the computer. And the computer would then come up with a new robotic uh, body that would be built by the machine. So that's more or less where we stand today. But uh, I know that there are people in the world, including Hod Lipson, still working on the studying ways in which we can possibly use new materials or design new ways of conceiving what a robot is without maybe servo motors, so that uh, evolution can operate in parallel both in the control and in the material and the morphology of the robot. But it's not yet an answered question at all. Let's talk a little bit about the future now. So. You talked about two reasons for doing evolutionary robotics in the beginning. One of these reasons was to be able to study the evolution of biological systems. And the second reason was to be able to design efficient controllers, which were complicated to make by using evolution. Uh, which one of these approaches do you see has the best future in the next 20 years? I think they both have a nice future because on the one hand, for biology, the main problem so far, now with the technology for evolving these robots and the robots themselves, the algorithm and the communication is, uh, I would say, sufficiently well mastered. And the main uh, obstacle there was the acceptance by biologists of the procedure. So the idea of using these robots to, uh, to address a biological question, this is starting to change. Uh, so you have a lot of biologists like Laurent Keller with whom we collaborate and many others around the world that appreciate the value of using these sort of robotic models to understand biology. So I think there, there is, we have a huge range of open questions that we can start to address. I also think that uh, very quickly, if not already now, evolutionary robotics will be um, just a toolbox 
that engineers in, in robotics will use. Just like you, you use, for example, you have some automatic procedure that you can apply standard procedure to control a robot in a, in a spe specific environment, you will have a toolbox, it's called the evolutionary toolbox, that you will apply to fine-tune the, the parameters or just to simply see what evolution would come up with to give you inspiration before using other technologies. So I definitely see the field as uh, growing in both directions. What are the main limits and challenges of evolutionary robotics? Will we be able to see in, in 20 years some robots which are reproducing and evolving on their own? So uh, there are many limitations. Uh, one of the main limitations, I would say, is that um, we today evolution is always evolution of a particular behavior for a particular task. So it's a single task and is well defined in advance. And of course, if, um, if you evolve a robot for a particular task, then that robot will only do that thing for the entire life, so to speak. So that's a big limitation. I think we have to develop novel ways of um, creating an open-ended evolutionary approach where the robot can continuously change and can remain adaptive. So that's the, the major, I would say. Of course, there is the other limitations, which is due to the fact that uh, today these robots only evolve the control system, but not yet the hardware. But I think that is not really a major technical problem because as the simulations are becoming increasingly more powerful, we can imagine that we can do part of the evolutionary process in simulation and then transfer the evolved control system, maybe with some learning ability, into the physical robot. In what areas of evolutionary robotics do you think the biggest advances will, we, will be made? I think the... The biggest advance will be in the coupling of evolution with some sort of learning during the life, so to speak, of the robot. Because if you can manage to achieve that reliably, then we will have the possibility of really using evolutionary robotics as a tool for designing robots. So you pre-evolve the robot in the factory, if you like, with the ability to learn. You package the robot, then the user, the customer, buys the robot, opens the box, plugs the robot in, and then the robot is ready to adapt according to the evolutionary uh, rules. Just like we, when we are born, we are adaptive, but the way in which we adapt depends on what we have been evolved for, for many years. That's, I think, we have to master that technology and then we will have a big advantage there. The second, I think, biggest advance will be made in the so-called, what I mentioned before, the open-ended evolution. So as people will understand how we can better design artificial genomes and uh, evaluate those robots so that they never stop evolving, then I think the, the technology will have a huge boost. And in general now, what areas of robotics uh, do you think will be the most promising? I think it will be in the area of uh, rescue, assistance to persons who need assistance. And it could be children, it could be elderly people, it could be persons that uh, have some mobility problem or some sensing problem uh, in education. So all those situations where the robots can improve our quality of life, then definitely um, I think there will be a need for, for these robots. Okay, thank you very much for being here, Dario. Thank you. This concludes this episode of Talking Robots with Dario Floriano. I'm Sabine Howard, and I hope to see you in two weeks. Until then, you can have a look at our website at lis.epfl.ch. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. 
For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.